Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 23 of the Life Theatre UK podcast. A discussion uh, of everything to do with theatre from a West End, a UK perspective. And today we're going to be talking about Emma Rice, who's departing the Globe Theatre. That's big news. The top three non-West End shows the last five years... They say, we say, we'll be discussing all the reviews and everything to do with Armadeus, the new production of Armadeus at the National Theatre. And we'll also be doing a discussion on Sideshow, King Lear, top three shows to look out for in London and The Secret Song. Let's get started. Very, very busy these days. Lots going on. Well, you can't help that. Being in demand. Being <laughs> no, in you've demand. been very busy too. Now, um, You're in demand, a bit like Emma Rice is in demand. Well, yeah, what happened? Well, She hasn't had a long tenure at the, the Globe. Well, no, she hasn't, that's right. But about three weeks ago now, October 25th anyway, I got these emails in my email box, one of which was announcing the 2018 season of the Globe second year of Emma Rose's tenure as artistic director. And the second email, which arrived simultaneously, was announcing her departure. And I thought, what? (laughs) What? They're announcing her second season and her departure. What? And then I read the um, press release from The Globe and I thought, hang on, something's wrong. This is a joke. It's April the 1st. Mm. This is a joke. Mm. I'm not Emma Rice's greatest fan when it comes to running The Globe. I'm not a greatest criticiser either, but... I don't understand how anybody can think it's okay for a board to appoint somebody and then to say, look, despite the fact you've done really well at the box office and the critics love your work across the board, and they did in the mainstream press, pretty much everybody loved what she did there, we want you to go. Mm. Well, it doesn't really say that. It says she's standing down and it says that they're going to return to traditional shared light performances in the space. They don't want the rigged lights and they don't want the sort of sound that she brought breathtakingly to play in the Globe when she did Midsummer Night's Dream, her first production. I don't understand how these people on the board can have picked her if they weren't expecting that sort of production. Yeah. And if you've picked her, why on earth wouldn't you support her when... She does exactly what you would expect she would do. And let's be clear, she wasn't hesitant about it. No. She was very upfront about wanting to (laughs) change the way Shakespeare was perceived and change the way the space of the globe was perceived. Mm. And she did both of those things incredibly well. And the attendance has been really good. Well, according to their own press release, Mm. it's the best best box office they've had in a long time. Well, she was there to shake things up and she's certainly done that. How long would... Would she have expected... Or she, did she have a three-year contract? Or? I don't know how long her no. contract was. But, but you'd expect it to be longer than once. once well, you'd expect season. it to be at least three years, maybe five. I would have thought, yeah. I don't know how long it is. So it, it does smack of something going on or someone not getting along with it her. It just or... smacks of rape, rampant sexism. Mm. They wouldn't do this to a man. I just do not believe they would do this to a man, but they feel completely well, content. Although the Sydney Theatre Company did, didn't they? Well, that's a Sydney Theatre Company, and in somewhat different circumstances yeah. because they 
But that was they, they weren't him. saying he's stepping down because we want to go back to traditional practices. That was some other forces at work, whatever yes. they were. Yeah, yeah. This is about the people who appointed her standing up and saying, "We appointed her. They've changed we, the globe. We knew what she was going to do, and we don't like it. Mm. And she's going. That's effectively what the press release says. Mm. Well, I don't know why the CEO and the chairman of the board haven't resigned. I mean. How can these people be trusted if this is what they do? Mm. It's absurd. And having gone on that journey and had some... It's not like they're, they're falling away at their box no. office and they're losing money hand I, over fist. I'm sorry, I'm Would sorry. Would you stick with it for a you, while? You because just, they can take the lights down next to you. But it, the, the lights <laughs> is just a ridiculous argument. Yeah, yeah. It's just ridiculous. But also, if you look at the King Lear that's playing now, it's every bit as in-your-face and con- contentious as Emma Rice's production of Midsummer Night's Dream. The guy who plays Edmund does a calisthenics workout during his first solo (laughs) and then moons the audience and pretends to masturbate. Now, that is more surprising and counterintuitive to the text than anything in Emma Rice's Midsummer Night's Dream. And not one critic that I've seen in a mainstream publication has criticised or said anything bad about Deborah Warner's production, really, Hmm. at the Old Vic. And yet... These are the same people who were, some of them, having concerns about what Emma Rice was doing. I I just, I don't understand why it's okay to be revolutionary at the old Vic or at the RSC, where there have been many productions at the RSC, much worse than Emma Rice's Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm. But that's all right. That's all okay. Mm. It doesn't matter what sex those people are who are directing them. It's fine. It's just, with Emma Rice, there has been this... Tut, tut, tutting as though she didn't fit into whatever conceit people think a director of the Globe should be. The most interesting thing that happened was Mark Rylance coming out and saying, well, you know, I know all of these people. I love Emma Rice. I love the Globe. Uh, They tried to work it out. They couldn't work it out. The reason they couldn't work it out was because the way Emma was programming things meant they couldn't have old-fashioned shared light productions. That seems to me to be extraordinary. Mm. Really? If the board came to her and said, look, can't we have at least one a year? Mm. But anyway, if that's what the board wanted, why didn't they say that before they appointed her? Mm. Why didn't they tell her, look, you can come and be the artistic director, but these are the parameters. There's got Mm. to be these many productions a year. And in any event, the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse does nothing but candlelit old-style performances. Now, when Mark Rylance was there, and for most of Dominic's tenure... There was no second space. There was just the globe. Well, now that whole second space can do the and traditional does, yes. intimate performances. Mm. Okay, not every play was written for that Wanamaker space, but a lot of plays were written for mm. that sort Are of. Are they space. trying to pander to the um, to the tourist who turns up thinking they're going to see people in tabards? Presumably, but but they've always done different things, like you know, uh, blind casting and yep. all female thing. Yep. I mean, if I came to London at any particular month, I may not see a standard thing at the Globe, regardless of Emma. No, but if if the notion is, oh, we're going to back to traditional shared light performances, well, where do you draw the line then there shouldn't be a woman on stage well there should be men in tights well that's right but that is what should happen (laughs) if you're doing that but that's not what they're saying no they're saying no no no, no, we're going to be very progressive about everything else except the lighting and the sound well that just makes them fools of the week and it does seem strange it does seem like there's something to the fact that this this happens under 
the authority of a female. Who's well, you judge. just look at Rufus Norris at the National, whose tenure is not that much older than Emma Rice's at the Globe, and he has not had a hit yet at <laughs> the National, which could compare to the kind of noise that her production of Midsummer Night's Dream made. Mm. She made a splash and a, and a really impressive mm. debut. He hasn't had a hit like that. I don't know what the figures are at the National, but I do, I've do. i never seen a time at the National when people are leaving at interval in the droves. They are leaving National Theatre Productions now. Really? It's extraordinary. Mm. I've never seen the level of disappointment mm. expressed by people who are at the National at these productions. Mm. The Suicide, my Lord. Um, the Pacifist Guide to the War Against Cancer. People, people just leaving bewildered. The number of people I know who are not renewing their subscriptions at the National Theatre because they're just they're tired of it. See, there's not enough tights go. on stage. It's nothing about tights, <laughs> silly boy. Um, it, it's uh, but interesting. Everybody's it? fawning and saying, "Oh, great Rufus, how marvelous we are to have you." Where was that support for Emma Rice? Yeah. And what's the difference? Oh, yes, that's right. He's a man. Mm. I think it's outrageous. I do. Too, I think it is I one of the most despicable things that has happened in the theatre in a very long time. And you don't expect it in theatre because, you know, in theatre you like to think people are a little bit more sensitive than in the business world. Well, you hope that, but you don't find that really, no. do you? No, 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 you don't. A lot of the time you don't. You find um, it actually more difficult. But this is the, the jagged, rough edge, and it's just plainly wrong. And no matter how I might have thought that Emma Rice may be squandering opportunities at the um, globe. The fact is, nobody should have been treated the way she was, and she did nothing to deserve to be treated that way. Mm. And it is a scandal and an affront that it's happened. And I find it incredible, really, mm. that the arts community are not up in arms and calling for the resignation of the people who have just basically beheaded her mm. and thrown her to the wolves. Well, she won't. She won't die. She's great. She'll mm. survive. And I, I'm very amused to see that. She must have known when this was all happening when she programmed that 2018 season and just put her fantastic production of Tristan Yzolt into the Globe next year. Well, you know, there will be no better raspberry blowing than that because that will be a triumph <laughs> that shows how that space can work. And they'll be scratching themselves going, oh, why can't we have this all the time? Well, because you've got rid of the person who created it. Stupid fools. Yes. Okay, well, um, to change on to our second topic for the... A happier today, topic. A happier topic. La, 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 la. Top three non-West End shows. Yes. And there's a, there's a, a real variety of, on. There, there? Yes, and it's quite... Been... Well, I think the, the non-West End is more vibrant, more mm. interesting, more exciting and filled with better people mm. than the West End, mm. which is plotting along going, oh, look, I've got a TV star. Shane, none of them are earning any money. <laughs> well, I don't know how much all of them are earning, mm. but a lot of them certainly aren't earning very much. No. Uh, but they're doing spectacular work. Well, that's the only reason I mention it, is yeah. that they, they do it, and regardless of what they're being paid and the size of the venue, a lot of them are doing some great stuff, mm. and they should You be. can't say that about politicians now, can you? No. Another subject. So, the top three non-West End shows at the moment, I think, are Ragtime, which is playing at the Charing Cross Theatre, in yes. which I urge everybody to see if they haven't seen it. And anybody who read Fiona Mountford's review of it must understand that she must have been having some sort of psychotic attack at the time, <laughs> because it's difficult to understand how anybody could find that production oppressive no. except that it's a musical and so perforce it has music in it and yes. a lot of songs and as I read Fiona's review I thought well what must she have thought of Les Miserables mm. because that is that is depressing which is depressing there's no and real, long and, yeah it's great I mean, and it's great. totally sung it's great, but, yes but yeah. I mean if you want to say something is depressing it's quite extraordinary yeah. anyway ragtime definitely 
Um, then there's a show at uh, the Vaults in Waterloo called, well, it's actually not called Fucking Men, but you can, I can't pronounce F asterisk-king men as the mm-hmm. title, so I'm going to say Fucking Men, mm-hmm. um, which is an adaptation of uh, Schnitzel's uh, La Ronde, or Asian, uh, depending on whether you're German or, Fre- or French, and I probably pronounced the German incredibly wrongly because mm-hmm. I don't know how to pronounce German, but mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, it's a very interesting, beautifully crafted production, uh, and it's not a gay play. It's a play about commitment, relationships, and love, it's, And lust. it's had wildly um, positive reviews all around. Yeah, yeah, and it should do. It's a very mm. good cast, very good play, really worth seeing. And then The Last Five Years, uh, which is playing you at the St James Theatre. And I did, I did. And Even I've never though it's been, not one of your favourites. No, I've never been a big fan of The Last Five Years in terms of a theatre experience. I've never seen it. Um, I've listened to the music and I love yeah. the music. I don't think the music is great. But and I've, I've seen, seen the film. I didn't like times. the film. I've seen it in three continents, actually. Mm-hmm. And then the film. Uh, and it never, it's never grabbed me. Um, it just doesn't fly, of, does it? It's well, like Well, I used to think that. Mm. But actually... Um, Samantha Barks and Jonathan Bailey make it fly, as we'll talk about in the next segment. But mm-hmm. it's definitely one of the three top productions playing at the moment off the West End. Jamie's over and Jamie's gone. Jamie's decided it's time to move on. Jamie has new dreams he's building upon And I'm still we were listening to then uh, is Cynthia Arrivo mm-hmm. beautifully singing Still Hurting from the last five years that's on YouTube from a performance they did yeah, this is the, um, the same version sort of mm-hmm. uh, that is playing at the St James Theatre mm-hmm. in that it was directed by Jason Robert Brown mm-hmm. it was done in America earlier this year and it featured Cynthia Arrivo and Josh Henry it's interesting when you get someone who's written a piece to actually direct it because sometimes, it, you know, it's like most big decisions in life. It's either a good idea or it's a really bad one. Well, I think that's right. Most yeah. of the times it's really bad. <laughs> but I do think that Jason Robert Brown, not so much, well, no, maybe as a director, I don't know. It certainly it seemed like a piece of theatre for the first time ever to me, mm. watching it at the St James. And I really felt that they were real people. Mm. And they weren't people singing songs about real people, but they were real people singing the songs. That's true, actually. That's what I felt flawed, about the movie. And they were... Yes, for the, not for even a second did I believe in either of those people as no, the characters. That I were felt playing. they were having a good old performance. It was really nice film. watching them mm. do their club act, party mm. piece, mm. but they weren't Kathy. They weren't the characters. Mm. So, anyway... Um, that uh, production at St James is, is, as you say, directed by Jason Robert Brown, and it stars Samantha Barks and Jonathan Bailey. And I guess Samantha Barks is the big draw card because she was Eponine in the film of Les Mis, and she's had a, a fairly substantial musical theatre career here, so everybody expects her to have the chops and the ability to do this. Jonathan Bailey, on the other hand, very unknown, really. 
in the musical theatre context, I think his only musical theatre outing was in American Psycho, mm. where he played a small role, very funny and very effectively, and he did sing very well in it. Mm. He certainly stood out. So do you think it was production. a choice of Jason Robert Brown specifically and he turned up for the audition? I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know how they worked it, but I do think that unlike sometimes the dark art of casting here... Mm. This is really good. Mm. They work well together. They what look you're getting together. at is that there's a lot of people who get a look in that, you know, might deserve a look in, but there's a lot of people who don't. Well, and in a no, casting I think situation, what I'm saying is the casting people are idiots. <laughs> don't really have any idea what they're looking for or what the mm. roles require, and don't seem to think that basic talent to do it is mm. some important criteria mm. in casting people. Mm. I think that's what I meant. Oh, okay, sure. Um, but in this case. The people who cast it. And who was that, I uh, wonder? I'm asking myself yours. as I reach for the programme. So Jason Robert Brown, though, may have um, had the more... The casting director was, was Pippa Alley and her team did the casting. I don't know who it was exactly. But maybe, you know, in a situation where Jason Robert Brown doesn't know the usual suspects in London, is what I'm getting at, he's, uh, he might have turned around and said, look, they're all really good, but I'd like to see a few more people. Yes, he could have. And I all of a sudden, you know, people are being seen that don't normally. And this, this boy, who hasn't had as much experience as a lot Not of others... Not in musical theatre, but of course yeah. he's a star, because yeah. he was in Broadchurch, and he's sure. in Channel 4 programmes. And so young people will know him mm. from that. He, he was in Campus, um, he was in a guest appearance in Doctor Who. Like, People will know him from his television, but they won't know him from musical theatre. Um, but easily, together, they're the best pairing I've ever seen in the last five years. Why? Well, because the chemistry worked, mm. because they were playing the characters, mm. really playing the characters, and they were nice through lines. It's very difficult, because the conceit of the last five years is that you have the relationship between the two of them, Kathy and Jamie. And it tells the story of that relationship. But rather than starting at the beginning and finishing at the end, it takes, from the female point of view, from... Uh, Kathy's point of view, it starts at the end of the relationship and she goes backwards in time mm. to the beginning of the relationship. And from Jamie's point of view, it starts at the um, beginning of the relationship and goes forward in time to the end of the relationship. So they're always at cross-purposes, except for one glorious section in the middle where they're together mm -hmm. and they have the really the only duologue, true duologue section of the piece where he proposes to her and she accepts. Mm. Um, and so it's... It takes a bit... The first time you see it, you get a bit, what the hell's going on mm. here? But you work it out. It's quite easy to work out. And it's quite interesting to watch the changes. And, of course, you have to hold in your head how she feels at the end compared to how he feels at the end. Mm. And does that work? Mm. And you have to hold in your head how he feels at the beginning and how she feels at the beginning. And the thing that struck me most about this production was I did hold on to those things. Mm. And the image that she imprinted on me from the very beginning about how she felt mm. stayed with me the whole way through. Yeah. And I could also see that... Yeah in her progression. Right. And I could also see it in him the same way. Rather than just a series of... Yeah, I mean, I think he little. is the better acting performance and she's the better singing performance. But they're both very good mm. and they're both stretched by the music. Mm. She's stretched in ways I found quite surprising because of having played Eponine. But maybe it was just the night I was there. She wasn't bad by any stress of imagination. No. She was great. But... It's that great thing where you have a performer who seems to be right at the edge of their range, and so it's just that bit more exciting. Yes. It might go wrong. She they might always, not sing that note. They always said Lloyd Webber always liked to cast people or to write things that would be stretching people mm. because well, it's more interesting to hear them strain a little bit. You know, yeah, and I think I like. think that is part of the fabric of Jason Rob Brown's music too because <clears throat> when he sings his own songs, they're never sung perfectly, mm. but they're sung with real feeling. Mm. And that's what these two are. They're a masterclass in storytelling 
through music. Mm. And they really give you a great sense of insight. And when you get to the scene where they propose, it's just beautiful. It is a lovely really scene, isn't beautiful. it? And it sits well in the, the new palace? Well, it's not the new palace yet, but it soon will be. But yes, it worked well. And the, the set design is quite twee and lots of sort of cardboard cutout things that come on. But I quite like that because mm. it, it fits in with the notion about remembering things. Yes. It fits in with things being slightly childish. Almost thought bubbles and, or something. And it also fits in with Jamie's life as a storyteller because mm. he's an author. <clears throat> and I found all of that really good. And the moment when, when the, the, the set parts way and a boat comes out and they're suddenly in the middle of the um, Central Park and... He's proposing to her in a, in a boat. It's it's quite lovely, uh, and they do clever things like she is in the boat in the wedding dress. You don't really understand why, but of course that's still the timelines converging. Uh-huh. So she comes slightly after he's asked the question, and then joins up with him in the middle. And deep, it's great. It, yeah. Like it's clever, mm. as well as incredibly simple. Um, and Jonathan Bailey, look, I'd be surprised if people didn't want him to be in big shows because he's you know he's very attractive very personable great voice great actor great performance he's really great you could see him doing finch and how to succeed in business for instance mm-hmm. um and samantha barks is is a highly emotional and totally engaged performer who whose eponine was one thing and that's that's that but she's got much more to her than eponine and did the audience enjoy it yes they mm-hmm. did they did indeed good and i think a special praise for this um Production because it's produced by <clears throat> two people who worked with Jason Robert Brown on um, the parade, which is at the Donmar. Uh, Hilary A. Williams and Stuart Williams, who I think must be a husband and wife team. But, you know, they've, they've supported this production and mm. put it on in good on them, I say, because this is um, producers who are looking about the best. Mm. Because Samantha Marks might be a star in that respect, but she's perfect for this role. Mm. And she's got the role because she can do it, not because she's a star. And it's the same with Jonathan Bailey. They've invested in talent and their rewards are great. And what did you give it in your... Five. Last five, five to me. Right. Shall we hear a little bit more? It made me feel about last five years away I've ever felt before. Getting bigger every minute Thinking what am I doing here While Mitchell's out every night Being a heavy metal drummer They got a little cute house On a little cute street With a crucifix on the door Mitchell got a job at a record store in the mall Just the typical facts of a typical life in a town on the eastern shore I thought about what I wanted It wasn't like that at all Hey, Carol and a cute baby sweater Thinking I can do better than that That's a lovely piece of music, isn't it? It's gorgeous. Anna really gorgeous. Kendrick's doing her version of I Can Do Better Than That from the last five years. And now we have They Say, We Say, and today's discussion point are the uh, reviews about Amadeus.
Well, that happens to be, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written. Yes. Mozart's Serenade for Winds. It's amazing. From uh, the, That's from the movie soundtrack. That's yes. The Nebel Mariner. And when you think about Amadeus, have you seen Amadeus on stage? No. I've seen the film. Well, it's one of my favourite films. Can I? <laughs> What's, What's your enduring image or moment from the film? Same thing as I think you're about to talk about, and that is when Salieri just absolutely op- opens up the score and is looking at the score, and you are watching him, and then the music plays in, in the soundtrack on the, on the movie. Hmm. Uh, well, the movie is a very opulent version of yes. that. Yes. But the, the stage show, that moment in the stage show when Salieri is describing to the audience the experience he had the first time he heard that piece of music is one of the most remarkable pieces of writing about music. Which they do in the film. Yeah, they, they do. They just happen to accompany it. They do it in a different way. But it's one of the most evocative and remarkable pieces. Mm. And it's a piece of writing that makes people who don't particularly care for music come to understand what it is that people who like music like about exactly. music. Exactly. It's a real extraordinary moment. And it completely fell flat when I saw the National Theatre's production of it. And mm. it didn't have any of the amazement built into it that should be there Mm. because the role of Salieri is a man who is accused or seen to have gone mad through the hatred of Amadeus through his because of his absolute um, envy envy yeah because of his love of him as his talent. Well, Salieri, I think, in the play... I mean, I'm, this is not a historical document. Nobody should approach Amadeus like it's telling you the real story of Mozart and Salieri. No, but that doesn't matter. It's a play. Hmm. And it's a play that works in its own particular universe. And in that universe, Salieri is bitter hmm. that he has worked hard and has achieved greatness as far as he understands it. And And then along comes somebody who behaves appallingly but is far greater than he could ever be. And he doesn't really understand why God has has bestowed. Yes. And so, yes, he he has a breakdown of kinds, I suppose, Mm. because he becomes obsessed with making sure nothing good happens to Mozart and eventually Mozart dies. Mm. And it's a fabulous play. Mm. I think it is really one of the best plays written last century and a couple of years ago Chichester did a revival of it with Rupert Everett which in which Rupert Everett was very good um, Joshua Maguire was Mozart less excitingly and there was in that production not enough emphasis on the music for my liking in that you didn't really get a sense of how the music was important to either Salieri or Mozart things like the bit where Mozart takes the March that Salieri has composed and turns it into one of the most well-known <laughs> pieces of music in the whole universe. Those moments were rushed through at Chichester. Mm. Now, they get those moments right at the National Theatre in this production, but there's a lot of music. As the Emperor famously says, too many notes. Well, that's how I feel about the music here, is that there's too much music. The orchestra are on stage walking around like cows at times. Sort of. Sometimes they have a real purpose and it's interesting. Mm. Other times they are coerced into sort of amateur acting 101. And it's really bizarre and off-putting. There's no real set. It's kind of all bits and pieces mm. that give you a, a suggestion. When it comes together in certain places, it can look spectacular. But it is very raggle-taggle when actually this is a play about minds 
and shadows and mysteries and good and evil. And you don't need to see mm. everything to understand how it works. Mm. And in fact, it works better the more you are intrigued by the mind of both the characters mm. and, and how they work. I, I found it incredibly disappointing and a really, really lame production actually and the music that yes the orchestral playing is quite good it's not fantastic but no. it's quite good but the singing which is interpolated is just average it's not very good and so for all that we're hearing about mozart being fantastic we're not getting vocal performances from the singers which are oh my god listen to that that was mm. incredible okay well to look at the reviews Susanna clapp from uh the observer which is the guardian she said, Adam Gillen overdoses the acting as Mozart, crouching, bouncing, leaping, panting. Sounds like the perfect Amadeus to me, but anyway. But pulls off a terrific turn. Lucian, uh, I don't know how to say this, Samati. Is I'm not right? sure, but I think it's Masamati. Is a wonderful ciliary, grave, almost carved, um, being part of this corroded design. Marshmallow courtiers, gold tailcoats, explosion of opulence. Michael Longhurst's production has some unnecessary opening fidgets, but it's impressive, lush, high voltage. So what do you disagree about that? Um, well, I'm not sure that I disagree with um, everything that she says, or indeed most things that she says there. Um, I think Adam Gillen does overdo it, but that's, I think, because of what he's been asked to do. Um, my trouble with his performance uh, as Mozart is that I, I didn't feel any sympathy for him. And I think the critical thing for the actor playing Mozart is to be the awful boy, the enfant terrible, but also to, to hold on to the fact so that when he dies, it really is crippling uh, and awful. And it, that just doesn't happen here. It, and, and although we may not appreciate the same sort of subtlety of the relationship with Salieri, we won't have that relationship. We have to like him enough to understand what the envy is about, what the... Well, I think we have to imagine that he was a man who could compose his fascinating music. Mm. Um, so somewhere there had to be something good about him. And yes, the script is quite difficult for him, but you don't have to play the hard edge of every line. Mm. You can find light and shade in it. And that the best Mozarts have been that way. Vile is vile in some places. Dirty and down-to-earth with... Constanza, um, flippant and irreverent and rude with the emperor and the courtiers. But nevertheless, you root for him because, wow, but he's got such talent and such mm. skill. And you look at him, the poor little thing. He's so beaten up by the weight he has on his shoulders about what his father thinks about him and how much of a failure he is to his wife and children. But Adam Gillen does a marvellous performance. Technically, it's astonishing. The, the amount of energy he puts into it, the level he sustains the whole way through, is quite incredible. I just think it's too extreme. Dominic Cavendish uh, from The Telegraph said, I'm in two minds about Adam Gillen's performance as Mozart. On one level, he gave it five stars. On one level, it is virtuosic. Is that how you say it? Vir virtuosic. Here is the simpering, giggling, infantile enfant terrible, terrible who is so busy casually showing off he fails to notice how many of the stuffy courtiers standing around him are being permanently alienated. Gillen, with a shock of bright bleached blonde hair and a baby voice that would make the most tolerant type want to throttle him, pushes Mozart's insouciance. insouciance. 
haven't heard that for a while, so far that he's often looping about the place with Quasimodo-like gait. Hmm. Less, actually, would be more, he says. Okay. I think that's right. I think that's so. Um, but then he goes on to say that, nevertheless, he rests sympathy for this gifted misfit in the closing stages mm. as he lies prone on a piano. Well, I, I think that's the point of departure for me with what he says. I, I agree with what he says about um, Mozart. Uh, I think he is too much, um, and he's in two minds about it. But I didn't feel any sympathy towards Mozart. And when he died, I was like, well, thank God that's over. And I don't think that should be the response to Mozart in this play. I don't think that's what Schaffer meant, and I don't think that's what's in the page. But it is the result, inevitably, of playing it this particular way. Mm. Well, he seems to think that Schaefer would have liked it very much. Yes, he said that, didn't he? He mm. said that... Because um, Schaefer only died in June this year. Well, I forgot about that. And so he says that, um, you know, it's a pity. He, he's sure he would have approved. I, I don't have any such confidence about that. Four stars from the Evening Standard. Yes. Um, Henry Hitchings. What did he have to say? Well, he said that uh, Michael Longhurst's interpretation is ambitious, yet it takes a while to exert its grip. Occasionally too fussy and not always sure-footed, it's packed with modern touches that don't add much. A tray of American donuts, mobile phones, Mozart wearing Doc Martens. The abiding memory of this revival, though, will be Adam Gillen's Mozart. Well... So I agree with him about all of those things. I think that is right, that what you will remember about this Mozart is Adam Gillen, no question. He is an actor of remarkable ability. Um, and I agree that Longhurst's interpretation is ambitious and it does take a while to exert its grip. In fact, it never exerted its grip on me. And it is too fussy and not always sure-footed. That's not too many notes, but too many things. Um, and yet, you know, he gave it four stars. So... The thing about this is that quite a lot of people who I've talked to who've seen this production have said, oh, I really liked it. And I've asked them, what did you like about it? And mostly they're people who've never seen the production on stage before. So I think that's fine to understand because the writing is so powerful that no matter if it's a bad production of the show or not, you'll still get something out of it because the writing is so splendid. Mm. Um, And when I ask them to tell me what it is they like about it, they can't really they can't really articulate what it is and I don't see that in these reviews either I don't get a sense of they all agree about the same thing Billington finishes off with in the end the production works superbly because it places the human drama in the seething context of a music dominated society and if there is more than a hint of Cecil B. DeMille in the staging then so there is in Schaefer's theatrical spectacle hmm well, I just think we disagree about the staging. He really liked the staging, thought it was incredible, whereas I thought it was... Looks a bit of a mess in some of these production shots. Well, exactly. And it felt that way watching it. It didn't feel like it was a real world. There's a kind of an almost Brechtian feel about, look, we're putting on a show, see how it all works together, see how the pieces work. Mm. This is what music's about. I suppose, in a way, it was encapsulated for me by the beginning of Act Two, where Salieri has a speech where he's railing against the caterwauling in the streets and he makes a joke about Rossini. And, you know, it's very funny in the theatre if you know the Rossini Cats Chorus piece of music. But in this production, they play that piece of music. It's like they don't rely on the audience to be well-educated enough to know or just to have known enough about music to know what it is Salieri is referring to. So they Mm. play it for you. Well, you don't need to do that. Mozart and Salieri's battle in Amadeus is one for the mind, mm. and it's for you to tune into what's going on on stage and see the various things and find what you like and what you don't like. Isn't it interesting that he's he's the, the director has seen the need to do that given what 
Schaefer supplies in the script, mm, which yeah. is so comprehensive. Well, I mean, I can I can understand why you would put music in extra places. I, I quite get that. But why you would put an orchestra on stage and have them walking around, or at one point putting on their backpacks and standing on stage at the side as if they're about to leave for a cup of tea, I don't know. Mm. Why you would have the orchestra all coming on stage and getting on their knees and doing sort of princess suppliant acting, I don't understand. Mm. It didn't add anything to anything and said nothing about the music. So I didn't see the Cecil B. DeMille aspect of the staging, whereas... Mm. That's the kind of staging which the play deserves and it hasn't had. Okay, so that is um, Who Will Love Me As I Am. Nice song. It's beautiful, From Sideshow. Yes. And that's uh, lifted from the original cast recording, Broadway yes. cast recording. That's right. Um, and Sideshow is now playing at the Southern Southwark Playhouse mm-hmm. uh, till the 3rd of December, I think. And uh, really worthwhile seeing. Mm. It's a, it's a, I think it's a great show when it's done properly. Mm. I think it's a really tremendous show. And I saw the Broadway revival two years ago now I think for those who don't know of what we speak it, the subject is uh, Siamese twins yes, yes that are joined at the hip literally co-joined twins as they like co-joined. to say co-joined okay because they're not Siamese actually oh, no, of course <laughs> hello but um, yes so co-joined twins they are they're kind of the big the, they were the first big co-joined twins to get fame in America mm-hmm. I think they were the first case in America I could be wrong about that but I did so. they in fact sing though I don't know. I don't know if they really say. <laughs> well, they not. do in this. Most people don't in real life. No. Um, but they do in this. So there's a film called Freaks, an old film. Anyway, they're in Freaks. And, mm. uh, the Broadway revival began with a very evocative um, black and white moment where they showed a projection of the beginning of that Freaks film or, you know, the mm. title of the Freaks. And it just set the stage for the whole thing that followed. Mm. Because the Southwark Playhouse is a much smaller space, of course, and you can't do very much there in terms of extraordinary staging. Uh, but I think one of the problems with this production is the staging because almost everything takes place on the floor at Southwark Playhouse. You know how mm. small an area that is. But they do have a, a layer... A level built up at the at the back of the auditorium that, that has a sort of a, a, a walkway. Mm. There's lots of glitter and shadows, and it could be quite an evocative place in which the freaks, inverted commas, from the sideshow, um, the bearded lady, and all of those people uh, could cavort and carry on. But instead, this production decides to put them right in your face, and so you know the person who's playing the human dog 
wearing their Chewbacca mask comes up and puts his face in your face. Well, it's not kind of frightening or scary or anything other than, oh, there's somebody wearing a mask. Mm. And so it kind of breaks down the... You need a bit of distance. Yes, exactly. The further away they are, the more real they'll be as freaks to us. The more Mm. in your face they are, the more real they actually have to be Mm. as abnormal people. And, of course, in 1920 or whenever... Um, the idea of what was abnormal is quite different to what the idea of abnormality is in 2016. So that's where the silent movie feel would have helped. It I would think, have well, placed yeah, it, yeah, it just puts it in an era. I mean, the costumes are great and they do it all that. It is a difficult space to Southwark Playhouse, isn't it? I, I do think it, Well, I think it's, yeah, I think it's a place you've got to really get to grips with. Mm. And in a lot of ways, this struck me as a show that had been conceived for a proscenium arch and not for what is essentially a thrust mm. in the round almost experience. It'd really suit one of those old Victorian tiny little playhouse sort yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah. well, that's the, that's the theatre that those sort of acts would have played in at that time. Actually, the Wilton musical. Wilton's would have been a fabulous place oh. for it. Yes, mm. correct. But I suppose, you know, yeah. it's a bigger venue than Wilton's in that respect. It's more well-known. Yep. And, you know, that's great. I love the Southwark Playhouse and they do really good things. I just mm. think with this... The decisions they've made as the directorial team here put emphasis on things which don't need to be emphasised and actually they'd be better off letting the tech speak for itself and the performers, who are really very good, Mm. do their work. Mm. Uh, And so I just found it a bit alienating. You didn't get to feel for the freaks in the way you should do, I don't think. But look, there's no taking away from um, Laura Pitt-Pulford and Louise Dearman, who are wonderful in, Mm. in their roles and really sweet and they sing very well and there's funniness and, they and sound very alike. They do, mm. yeah. And and they, uh, and the other problem is they're they're kind of joined at the hip, metaphorically as well as literally here. Mm. But it doesn't really feel like it's a really serious join. It sort of looks a bit fragile. And so there's all this talk about well, if we have an operation, it might kill us. And you think really. Why? Because they're only joined at a tiny bit. Of, oh, I see what you're saying. In, right. Rather than being a more... And I don't know how they were co-joined in real life, but they didn't appear to be very co-joined here in this production. And I think it sounds to me like a good old, bit of good choreography might have fixed it rather than a life-threatening disease. <laughs> well, <it laughs> this operation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they, you know... Uh, Anyway, look, they're, they're small things, but I think the small things mount up in that production mm-hmm. to take away from the overall glory of the piece. Shall it's we a hear piece it? where you have to get really into it to, to enjoy it. And look, the two men were very good too. Um, Dominic Hodson and Hayden Oakley. And Hayden Oakley was in um, Sunset Boulevard earlier this year and, and very good in the kind of leading man, awful leading man role uh, here. Um, but he could afford to be uh, more awful. Mm. Um, and the other um, gentleman, Dominic Hodson, very good song and dance man doing that whole routine. But I, I just felt over and over again that the director was telegraphing what was going on in the show before it needed to happen. It was all laid on rather thick rather than just letting it unfold and you're getting lost in the story. And mm. I thought that was a pity. But Shall we get lost in some more music? Sure. Okay. It's still very enjoyable and you should go and see it. Yeah, I will.
It really is a show with some great music and Louise Dearman and Laura Pitt-Pulford really sing beautifully mm. and bring all of the enchantment that the melody suggests it should have. It's, it's really worthwhile seeing, it really mm. is. It doesn't work on every level, it doesn't have to. You're at the Southwark Playhouse, mm. not expecting to have London Penlodian. All the bells and whistles. But I do think it's a space where, you know, Tom Sutherland has shown a couple of times how you can make that space work mm. for the show, no matter what the show is. And I just thought the director here, Hannah Chiswick, just hadn't made the space work the best way it could have for the show. But nevertheless, there are a lot of really good people in it, and it's really worth seeing. King Lear is the next thing that we want Another to show with about. a lot of people in it. But yeah. not all of them are worth seeing. <laughs> but of course, the one that everybody uh, is interested in is Glenda Jackson, yeah. who's playing King Lear. And not Queen Lear, but King Lear. She's very definitely a king. Although How does there, that work? There is a moment where... Is that a bit of a lesbian thing? No. <laughs> <laughs> and viewer in the listening world... You can't be a viewer in the listening world. You see how he's just discombobulated me completely? No. Wait a minute. In the list of... Glenda Jackson is a woman... Playing King Lear, correct. But what you're saying is she's playing it not as a, as a as a um, the character isn't a blind. Woman. The actress is a woman, right? So yes, it is blind gender casting. She's playing a man. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so that is blind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. It, it's um. Did they strap down her bits? I beg your pardon. <laughs> oh my god! I saw in the picture politically that she... incorrect. Number two. No, it's not politically incorrect. If she's playing a man, she's she actually looks quite like a man, but I don't suppose. <laughs> no, I mean in the pictures, she's got her hair and she's They've wearing cut her a, hair. She's wearing be, a shirt. I guess androgynous looking. Yeah, and she's not wearing any makeup. She does look like a frail old man. I thought she was very convincing as a right. man. I thought she was more convincing as a man who was once a king than many of the men who I've seen play King Lear. <laughs> Did she? Um, did she's she certainly voice? far more convincing than Anthony Sheer, who's about to play. Well, he's playing it at the Barbican mm. at the moment in the Royal Shakespeare Company production. And indeed, this whole production is better than that production. Wow! Even though I have a lot of reservations about this production. What are some of the reservations? Um, well, Deborah Warner has stayed. The play is all about Deborah Warner and Deborah Warner's vision for the play, whatever that might be, and that is to make us see at the beginning that we're 
we, we get, when you come into the auditorium, people are cleaning the stage, oh, sweeping I hate it. All that business. Well, there you go. Um, they're setting up the white set. It's all white. There are big blocks of white. There are blue chairs in a row, and then mm. they get moved. And it's like, oh yes, okay, all very Brechtian. We know that we're watching a play. We know there's actors, so you know, there's a distancing between us and watching the piece of work happen. Fine. They project up onto the white screen the act one, scene one, so that keeps clocking through the whole way oh through the God, show. Oh my God, it's quite literal. And you just think, well, okay, why are we doing that? Okay, they might all be smoking cigars and doing it on Europe, but why are we doing it? What is this adding to this production of King Lear? And particularly when you've got Glenda Jackson coming back to do, you know, her return to the stage in, in one of the biggest pieces of theatre that anybody ever does. Anyway, for all that, Glenda Jackson rises and is wonderful. She's extraordinary, uh, the energy she puts in. And she's quite... She's quite... Um, put through her paces by the production. So it's a big stage, the old big stage, yeah. and because it's so vast and there are just these white screens and things which are moved around, you can go back in it a long, long mm. way. And so there's this 80-year-old woman at the back of the stage saying dialogue. And it's very hard for her to be heard yeah. at that distance, but she yeah. still can be heard. Yeah. Um, Did she affect her voice to make it sound like a man or is that where it's blind? Is it's it's just Well until I hear her speak normally now, I I can't I can't (laughs) really tell you. Well it's an interesting point because we actually haven't seen much of her for such a long time. For a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And she does look much older. Hearing her making political speeches is not the same as playing a character. So I don't know. But all I can say is it's one of the most enjoyable performances of King Lear itself. Her, her portrayal that I've ever seen. Well, I've, I've seen... I've, I know of a lot of people that are flying over from New York to see it. Yeah. yeah well, there's an event. It's a real yeah. event. And it's not a King Lear you'll forget any time soon. No. Um, and, and, you know, there's a moment where... The, the famous moment where King Lear curses Goneril to be barren. Mm-hmm. And it's quite a moment when it's a woman cursing another woman. Mm. Um, well, even though she's playing King Lear and you totally believe that she's King Lear, but... Nevertheless, it's still a woman doing it. Um, where she's let down, I think, apart from Deborah Warner's not supporting her enough with the directorial energies, um, some of the cast are a bit disappointing and don't give her much at all. Um, but she just strides on. Harry Melling is the one exception. He's excellent as um, poor Tom and Edgar. And mm-hmm. it's a really full-blooded, whole-hearted performance. Um, the three daughters... None of them worked for me. Occasionally they worked in moments of isolated splendour, but not as a whole package and not as a family. And the sense of this being a family play, which it is, it's about Leah's family and it's about the Gloucester family, the two sons and dad. Um, But you don't get that sense. It's sort of because of the sort of staging, which is part apocalyptic, part nowhere, you think it's a big epic play about epic things and really it's not it's, mm. it's a smaller play about family dynamics and mm. so everything's lost the fool appears in a superman onesie and i didn't find him funny the blinding scene superman of gloucester that's <laughs> <laughs> true the blinding scene where gloucester is blinded is horrifically done horrifically done um, and clever use of shadows to make the violence of the moment even more spectacular than it could ever have been if we were watching it happen, actually. Mm. But because by use of the shadows, and uh, he gouges out his, his eye with the end of a spectacle. Ooh. So 
the what's that called? The arm, the, the arm, arm of the, the, of arm, the yeah. glasses, and he gouges it into the side and pops out the eye, Ooh. and it splops across the stage. Ooh. But you watch it on the shadows on the screen, and it's quite compelling. Mm. And then they undercut all of that by throwing the second eyeball out into the audience. No, so I wouldn't advocate that. People laugh, laugh. <laughs> and think it's funny, and of course it's not funny, and it's mm. bizarre. Why I always find that fascinating that? when they do something as, mm. as shocking as that and people aren't going to be shocked because it's too much. So what do they do? They fall back on the next reaction, which is Just laughing. Laughter, exactly. And that blows Undercuts. the whole... Yeah. Unless laughing at it is what you're after and maybe yes. that's what Deborah Warner was wanting. Yeah, sometimes know. discomfort and all but that. But it's yeah. not the reaction that I wanted to... I, I was actually sitting there going, oh my God, this is horrific. And then Fabulous, the eye yeah. came in the audience and went, oh, why did they do that? I know. And the whole mood was gone in a second. Yes. Everything well, that had been established was gone. That's the thing is once you, once you break that tension in a moment like that, it's gone. You never get it no. back. And it's like mm. a big fat tyre being let down mm. quickly. Mm. Did you like my analogy then? I did. Yeah. You're always good with a tyre. Top three shows to look out for in London, Stephen. Well, there's always, you know, a new show or an old show or some show to look out for. But at the moment, in the next couple of weeks, I think we'll be looking out for Buried Child, which is a play by Sam Shepard. Um, and we've just had Sam Shepard, Fool for Love, mm. at Found 111, finishing off that pop-up venue. And this is another Sam Shepard coming to town with Ed Harris. Uh, oh, yes, and it looks right. very good at Trafalgar Studios. Mm. And then at the... Um, at the Orange Tree Theatre in uh, Kingston, we have a Somerset Morn play called Sheppy, which hasn't been seen for a long time. And I'm very much looking forward to that. The Orange Tree has been doing marvellous things with revivals, and it's fascinating to see the care and life that's brought into the works there by Orange Tree. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And then Nice Fish, which is a curiously titled play, mm. but it stars Mark, Mark Rylance. And it had a very successful season in New York, and now it's coming to London. And he's just gone I from have, strength I have, to strength, hasn't he? Yes, yeah. Oh, sound, that sounds so condescending. I just mean he's just—he's <laughs> everywhere. He's one of those people mm. that uh, anything he's in, people—it's mm. him largely. He's, I think, he's certainly, isn't it? certainly um, had a stellar time the last few years. Yeah, yes, movies um, and all sorts of things. Mm. And he, I think it's what goes on behind his eyes. You know, there's—you can—it's his eyes which are so amazing in Wolf Hall. Yes, um, when you're watching him in more form, you're wondering what he's thinking. You're following his thoughts, and he, he's not scared. And yet, what was that play that where that play that I saw him in that scared the living daylights out of me? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Mm. There's no, there was no Jacobian forces going on there. <laughs> no, <laughs> that was an amazing performance. Oh God, yeah. I was devastated by that, <laughs> and, and and it was one of those uh, experiences where I think a lot of the audience were too. Mm. You know, at the end, it was like, whoa! I think we need to leave the theatre quietly now because we all need to digest a bit before we head out into the real world <laughs> to recover. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, I don't know anything about Nice Fitch except it played in New York. I've assiduously not looked to see anything about it so I can go with a completely blank canvas and let Mark Rylance paint on me. Mm. Fair so we'll see what happens. Lovely. Um, All right. So now we're up to that magical time when it's yes. time for a secret song. Mm. So let's have one. Every day needs 
massages my carcass. Sassoon gives my tresses a rinse. I've been trained by Najinsky and coached by Lewinsky. So where in the world is my prince? Then along came a man from a land that was far, far away. He was strong, he was smart, he was sweet, he was rich, he was gay. I have ladies in waiting and Forbes' highest rating. It shouldn't be hard to convince some young dupe to devour me, to come and deflower me. Was it, that song was a secret for me because I've never heard that. <laughs> and did you like it? Yeah, very good. It's um, it's a typical Jerry Herman. I mean, you said it, it was is, a Jerry it? Herman score, yeah. and no one writes two four quite like him. Yeah, two four <laughs> show tunes. Yeah. Um, interesting. I'd never Miss Spectacular. Never, yes. never heard of that. It's, it's and a, it's, it's a, never a, been staged. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe it has. I'm not sure. Yeah, but that's the concept but, album. Uh, it's a concept album that uh, is is really good. I think. Very good. Anyway. It'd be interesting to see if it ever does get produced. Well, maybe you should produce it next year. Indeed. Well, me? Yeah, right. (laughs) Here we go. Now it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from you. The music in today's podcast is still hurting, and I can do better than that from the last five years. Written by Jason Robert Brown and performed in concert at the New York Town Hall and on the soundtrack of the movie by Radius TWC. Serenade for Winds was written by Mozart. It's from the Amadeus movie soundtrack by Orion Pictures. Sound Sideshow original cast recording, Who Will Love Me As I Am, uh, is by Sony BMG. And I Will Never Leave You is from the 2015 Broadway revival, released by 2015 Broadway Records. Miss Spectacular, written by Jerry Herman, Where in the World Is My Prince, is our secret song, and it's a concept album by DRG Records. 